And my hope this morning is that you would uh, learn, uh, but also that your heart will be challenged, and that after today you would you would be a little bit more about what Jesus has specifically called you to be doing. And our scripture this morning is in Matthew chapter 4, verses 17 through 22. Uh, so if you'd open up your Bibles to that. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles back there. Go ahead back and grab one. And if you don't own one, keep one. Matthew 4, verse 17 through 22. And in your bulletin is a space for notes. So feel free to doodle. I know some of you are doodlers. Um, but take some notes. There's some, there's some good stuff that's going to be in this passage today. Um, and some good challenges as well. So feel free to jot down some notes while you're, while you're following along. Keith Green was a part of the Jesus Revolution. You guys know that, right? Keith Green got in a lot of trouble. He, um, he used to do this thing that was outlandish. He would do concerts for free. And some in the CCM industry, the machine, got really frustrated at Keith Green. See, they had this system worked out. And he was kind of going against the system. Not that he was trying to rebel, but that he wanted to praise the Lord and he wanted people to join him. And some are like, dude, you're making us look bad here. We're trying to earn a living on our music. And he's like, you do what you want to do, but I feel called to do this for free. So he would do some free concerts and got, and got some heat from the system on it. Have you ever seen religion get in the way of following God? For some reason, humans, we have a way to formalize just about everything, even if it goes against the original intent. You see this in the church, but you also see it in society. Uh, my dad has spent the last couple few weeks in hospitals and a nursing home, and you definitely see it there. Most hospitals back 6,000 years ago, think of originally why a hospital, why there's people who are doctors, and I know they used to be barbers, and nurses, why do they go into that? It's because they love people and they want to care for people who are sick, right? But somehow, money chasers get in the way of things. And it's frustrating. And, and many in the medical field, like nurses, godly nurses or godly doctors, who are trying to care for people, get kind of hamstrung because there's all these things they need to do because there's fear of litigation or... There's um, some money chasers, like I said, who want to make more money. There was one practice I'm familiar with where the doctor loved his patients, and he saw it as a ministry. But corporate said, uh-uh, you're taking too long with patients. They need to be in and out of that room in two minutes. That's a pretty common thing, two minutes. And we got to move on. we got to keep this going here. Instead of the doctor being able to hear them or the nurses being able to hear what's all going on with that patient, they feel this pressure to rush them through. So the world systematizes things, but God's people sometimes systematize things as well. Jesus saw it in his day with his leaders. For instance, for the sake of their system, some religious people would take money that should have been used to help their aging parents, and they would dedicate that money to the Lord. When all along the Lord said, Honor your father, and your mother. So there's an instance in the Bible where Jesus ran across this. And this family, and this person's like, I can't help my parents, this money is for the Lord. 
why don't you take it out of your eating out money, you know, or yourself, so to speak. They were glad to keep their money, but anything to help their parents, oh, that's for the Lord, I just can't help out, you know. Their religious system of dedicating things to the Lord took precedence over what the Lord was really getting in that, that is to love him and to love people. Or, because of their system, the religious leaders got mad at Jesus for healing a man on the Sabbath day when there's no violation of God's law in doing so. Traditional boundaries were fighting against what was loving and right. The religious leaders of that day would allow people to suffer, but they felt no obligation to help those suffering. One example of that is there was a man beaten, bloodied, half dead, laying on the side of a road. And in this story that Jesus tells, um, people were walking by that man. Now you might ask, why weren't they helping him? And some were the religious leaders were walking by that man. Or the pastors of our day were walking by that man. And you get to thinking, why didn't they help him? Well, the reason why is if, according to God's law, if you touch something unclean, you're touching blood or a carcass, you yourself are considered unclean, and you can't go to the temple. And so instead of them stopping to help this man, they left him lay there because it was inconvenient for them. Or we get lepers. In God's law, if someone touches something unclean, they are ceremonially unclean and cannot go to the temple for a period of time. So instead of helping these poor people with leprosy or whatever else they had, they cast these precious people out of their sight. But Jesus was different. And by the way, we know he gave the law to the people in the first... It's his law. He's the author of it, right? What do we observe him doing with the leper? And it's very specific in the scripture. It says Jesus reached out and touched the leper. That would have been unheard of. According to the law, according to our religious system, you don't touch a leper. How could you dare touch a leper? But it very specifically says he touched the leper. He loved this unclean person and sacrificed being able to go into the temple for a period of time. You see, Jesus is deeper than human-crafted ideas about religion. In fact, he didn't come to start a religion, like some seem to think. He came to start something much more profound, much deeper than that. He came to call people to himself. And today we're going to look at Jesus calling men to be with him and what that looks like for us as well. On your paper, there are some points, some questions. These points are, what were the disciples doing when Jesus called them? What did he specifically call them to? Then we're going to look at, what were you doing when Jesus spoke to you when you first met him? And what has he specifically called you or called us to do? But before we do, let's pray together. Father, Your word teaches that Jesus' yoke is easy, his burden is light. In a sense, it's very simple to follow you, 
although it practically gets very difficult sometimes, our minds start wondering or whatever. Help us to purely follow you. Help us not to get convoluted by all the noises in society, but help us to be true Christians who follow you from our minds and from our hearts, Lord. Father, I pray that your spirit would open up our minds and our hearts to understand your word this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So we're in Matthew 4, verse 17 through 22. Verse 17 says this, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. As J.D. mentioned last week, this is the key verse for Jesus' teaching and his sign ministry. Memorize this verse. I'll give you 10 seconds to memorize it. All right, time's up. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Question. What were the disciples doing when Jesus called them? Verse 18. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, or Cephas if you like that better, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Now behind me is a map of Israel. It's going to be really hard to read the places. So you'll have to download your own map, or if you want to, you could take out your phone in church today and pull up a map of Israel and Jesus' day. And um, this kind of, can, you, can anybody see that map, by the way? You can? I'm nearsighted, so I can't see anything. Um, so you'll have Jerusalem down there if you can't see that well. You have the Dead Sea. Going up is the Jordan River. That's the Sea of Galilee, the upper waterway. It looks like a harp. That's where Jesus spent most of his ministry in Capernaum and Chorazin and that area there. When he crosses and talks to the demoniac, he crosses the Galilee and goes to the Gadarenes or Gergesa. And so he's kind of spending the majority of his time up there in Galilee. And I think, J.D., you talked about that last week as well, right? So as we're walking through what Jesus did with his disciples, kind of keep this map in your mind or on your phone. So we need to know this. This was not the first time these guys met Jesus. If you look at John 1, verse 35 through 51, you'll see that they've already had an interaction with Jesus in the past. Earlier, John introduced two of his disciples, which are Andrew and Simon Peter, to Jesus and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. These guys left John and followed Jesus. They gathered immediately afterwards both Philip and Nathaniel and followed him. So there's four. These four followed Jesus through Cana, um, the hometown of Nathaniel, by the way. They were together with him during the first miracle of Jesus in Cana when he turned the water into wine. They went with Jesus to Nazareth, Nazareth, uh, where he was rejected. And then they went to Capernaum by the Sea of Galilee, which became Jesus' base of operations. He then went up to the temple with the four for the Passover and cleared out the temple for the first time in John chapter 2. After that, they headed out to Galilee, but Jesus had, the scripture says, he had to go through Samaria. Now, Samaria is between Jerusalem and the Galilee. Samaria is a dirty place where people don't like to go. Some of you probably already know this. So a lot of people would go down through the mountain range into the desert and walk along the Jordan River Basin. But Jesus, it says in Scripture, had to go 
through Samaria. And that's where he meant the woman at the well near Sychar, which is right smack dab in the middle of Samaria. And the four were with him. So they met a woman at a well in Sychar. And they're totally confused still at that point. After Sychar, they continued their journey to Capernaum, or as they like to call it out there, Capernaum. There they watched Jesus teach and confirm his message through miracles. He went, after, he went into synagogue after synagogue teaching and saying, I'm the man. So here we have Simon and Andrew. Simon was married. I don't know if you knew that or not. Both were fishermen, which means they weren't exactly Torah scholars. Um, I think I've shared this before. Young kids used to go into synagogue into school and they would learn the Torah and they would try to memorize the first five books of the Old Testament. Those who did really well went on to become more of like a protege and and some of them became rabbis and maybe even had their own school at some point in life or their own synagogue. These guys, not so much. They kind of weren't getting it. They weren't anybody here bad at memorization? I mean, I would be a Bible school dropout if they had us memorize the whole Bible. I can't even memorize, you know, barely Martin Luther King's speech. I had to do that once, and I'm like, man, this is going to kill me. It was like a paragraph, you know. But so these guys, I can relate with them. They, eventually, the rabbi said to these guys, he's like, love you guys. <laughs> go, back to your, go about your father's business. Go fishing, you know. So these guys went about their father's business and help their dad fish, which, by the way, was a good career. Shelly, your Uncle Steve made his whole livelihood as a fisherman, right? He's a fisherman and a Christian. He could probably relate to these guys. So that's what they did. They were, so they were familiar with Jesus and saw him do some amazing things, and his teaching was phenomenal. He had what was called shmica, which means he had guts and he had passion, when he would preach, unlike the other guys who were kind of lackadaisical. This guy had some passion. He preached with authority. There was something about this man. So open your Bibles to Mark chapter 3, verse 13 through 19, or if you like Luke better, you can look at Luke 6, verse 12 through 16. It comes up with a list of the 12, the rest of the guys that Jesus called. So in this list, we see Matthew. Matthew was a tax collector, a businessman, not respected by the, by the Zionists, for sure. Thomas, anybody know what Thomas was? I doubt it. None of you know what Thomas was. Get it? All right. <laughs> Couldn't resist that one. The rest were traditionally zealots, uh, according to tradition, all of them. Uh, we don't know that for sure, but if tradition's accurate here, that's what they were. You have Simon the zealot, so we know he was a zealot, right? James, the son of Alphaeus, possibly Matthew's brother. Traditionally, he was thought of as one of the zealots. Thaddeus, traditionally seen as a zealot. And then we have Judas Iscariot. Interestingly about him, Jesus knew that Judas was going to betray him. Jesus, I'm sure Jesus knew that he was stealing from their bag of money that they needed to buy things with. He knew this ahead of time. Also interesting, I found, some scholars suggest that he, Judas was actually what's called a, 
Sikari Zealot, which is, Lauren, a group of what? It's not a sermon unless I get feedback from you. <laughs> That's why I did it. He was, Sikari were a group of assassin zealots. They would carry the knife. And uh, a lot of zealots worked against Rome. Uh, zealot means to have zeal or to have passion. And zealots were a group of passionate people whose goal was Zion. And to see the Roman, um, the Roman Empire destroyed and removed from their midst so that Israel could be free from this burden. Some would do it violently, maybe like Judas Iscariot. Some were doing it through working through systems or gathering information or what have you. So they were passionate guys, nonetheless. What they did as far as a job, I don't, I don't think there's a full-time job for a zealot. You know? uh, but what they did, we don't know for sure. But what we do know is that all these men, at some point, were going about their normal life, their normal day-to-day, doing their thing. Sort of like us. But one day, Jesus called their name. Jesus spoke to us and reached out to us while we were just doing our thing. Jesus changed their lives. Jesus reoriented their lives in a major way. They, were, they would still be fishing, right? Some of them. But they would be fishing for something much different than they were before. Verse 19. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. What does that look like? When I was a kid, there was a video. Maybe you've seen this video. It scared me to death. I used to fish a lot when I was a kid. My senior year, we used to fish almost every day after school. And um, so this video is of a man who's fishing. And he's got his lunch, and he's by himself at a a lake. And uh, he's fishing. And all of a sudden, he looks over, and he sees a shiny red apple. Anybody see this? Anybody know where I'm going with this thing? On the shore. And he's like, ooh, hmm. So he picks up the apple. He's looking at it. He's like, cool. Takes a bite of the apple. He's like, man, this is a good apple. You know, polished a little bit more. Takes another bite. All she's like, ooh, ooh. And he gets, it gets pulled into the water. There, the fish are fishing for men. And, uh, and he's like fighting and he's struggling and he's getting pulled deeper and deeper in the water and pretty soon he drowns. And then all of a sudden, like 10 seconds later, you see, back on the shore, another apple. And when I was a kid, I thought, I'm never eating an apple on the shore, that's for sure. <laughs> and uh, I'm like, what a weird, twisted illustration of fishing for men. <laughs> you know? So what does he mean specifically by what he says to them? Follow me, he says first. Here's what it looks like. It looks like relationship. He was calling them the close proximity, to walk literally in the dust of the rabbi. He wanted them to be close, right with him. He called them into relationship. When Jesus called you, did he not call you into relationship with him? Follow me also looks like followership. He is the head. He leads. He sets the pace. We come behind him. They walked behind him. They did not lead him in the direction they wanted to go. He led them 
in the direction he wanted them to go. It was followership. So he says, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Fishers of men, interesting phrase. Discipleship, studenthood, picture, if you will, Mr. Miyagi and Daniel. My favorite discipleship illustration. Daniel did wax on, wax off, paint the fence, wax the car. And my favorite part of the movie was when he said, paint the fence, and Daniel said, I'm finished. And Miyagi goes, no. Or he goes, he asked him, like, other side or something like that. And what did he say? Both sides. And I felt Daniel's pain. I'm like, oh, no. that would be." And Daniel had to do both sides. Miyagi spent all this time with him, and there was one point where Daniel's like, I'm so tired of doing this stuff. All I am is your slave labor. And Miyagi teaches him, here's why I had you do this stuff. Here's why you follow me. I'm the master. You are not. And probably the best illustration that we could think of today of discipleship. You haven't seen the movie? It's a good movie. Watch it on uh, VidAngel. <laughs> uh, and also, Make You Fish of the Men, he was calling them to a life of ministry. Their life was no longer, I'm going fishing. Rather, they had been given a focus. Verse 20 and 21 says this, Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending the nets. And he called them. Immediately, they left their boat and their father and followed him. Now, notice how following Jesus is done on his terms and his timing, not our timing. Either they would follow or they wouldn't follow. The choice is up to them. Open your Bibles to Luke 9, verse 57, if you would. There's a couple of illustrations of other people that Jesus called to himself. And look at their response. Nine, Luke 9, verse 57 through 61. It says this. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lie his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those in my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Then hop over to Luke 14, verse 17 through 20. Jesus gives an illustration in Luke 14, verse 17 through 20. He gives an illustration of a man symbolizing the Lord who's throwing a banquet for people. Let me read this to you. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I bought a field. i got to go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen. 
and I go to examine them. Now think about it. Would you? Anybody in here ever buy five? No, I'm just kidding. Would you buy a car without looking at it first? Talk about a lame excuse. I had to go examine them. Please excuse me. And another said, I have married a wife. I had to go examine. No, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servants, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and blind and lame. The master, what didn't he do? The master didn't say, oh, you know, we all buy oxen. Oh, we... No, he said, done. Go find different people to go be with me. Either you follow him or you don't. Question. Where were you when Jesus opened your heart and mind to trust him? For me, I was in middle school. I was trying to fit in with the ornery crowd. <laughs> you would have never guessed that one, I'm sure. One night, while lying in bed, Jesus called me. Where were you? On your, on your paper, write down. Where were you when Jesus first opened your eyes and opened your mind to him? Write that down. Another question. What has Jesus specifically called you to do? First, trust. Just as Jesus called these men to follow him, which takes massive trust, they left their livelihood, so Jesus has called us as believers to trust him. Imagine a person who says he or she is a believer and doesn't believe in him for anything. What sense is that? It would kind of be like a cook who you sit down, they cook a meal, you sit down to eat with them, and they just sit back. They don't eat their own food. Would you trust a cook that doesn't eat their own food? If you don't know, the answer is no. You should never trust a cook who doesn't eat their own food. So it is, as a Christian, we are called to trust. And it makes no sense that we live through life saying we trust him for salvation, but we're scared to death to trust him with what he says about us. We're scared to death to trust him with what he tells us to do. We're called to trust him. The second thing we're called specifically to do is to repent. Jesus reoriented the fishermen's lives when he called them. They couldn't remain where they were. There was a major change, of course, from sin but also from their normal. Jesus has called us to repent as well, to turn from the way we were living, to change our mind, to reorient our lives, ourselves, and to follow him in the way he has told us to, to leave what is familiar and to pick up our cross daily and follow him. He isn't just fire insurance. He wants all of us. He wants a relationship. He wants followership. He wants to teach us and to have us join him in what he is doing right here, right now. In Acts 17, it says that God has appointed our times and places on purpose. We are here today in 2023 for a reason. Jesus doesn't only want us to trust him as Savior, 
but also as leader. You trust Jesus as Savior, but do you trust him as well as your leader? The Christian life is one of repentance and realigning ourselves to his purposes. We are constantly correcting our course to align ourselves to how he wants us to live our lives. So he's called us specifically to trust him, to repent and to live a life where we often repent of things. And he has called us to ministry, is the third thing, all of us. While we are not one of the 12 apostles, as we see in this passage here, in fact, the office of apostleship, from what I, how I understand scripture, is limited to the 12 and Paul. Jesus has called us to a life of ministry. What does this mean? It means to serve him and others. It is a life calling. Does that mean we need to leave our job and be a missionary overseas? Maybe. Maybe not. That's for you to lean into the Lord and figure out. But lean into him and figure it out. Does that mean we may need to get out of our comfort zones and sacrifice our agenda? Most definitely, yes. Does that mean I have to quit being a school teacher? Maybe. Maybe not. It may mean that how you see yourself in the capacity God has called you needs some tweaking. You will need to take off your old glasses of how you saw the world and put on Jesus' glasses. Let me illustrate this for you. This bus driver is named Linda. And I want to read a story about Linda. I read this from a book that Mark Wardenbeck and I are going through. And this story really messed me up. <laughs> I read it and I thought, oh my goodness, this is so good. And it really challenged me as a, as a Christian. Mark, you too? Yeah. It's a good story. Linda, the bus driver. Let me read this to you. Linda is a Metro bus driver who was featured in the San Francisco Chronicle. Why the article? The big news about Linda is that she loves the people who ride on her bus. A reporter from the Chronicle took that bus and he couldn't understand what was happening on it. Linda, the driver, knew all the regulars. She learned their names. She waited for them if they were not at the top, at the stop when she got there. One day, the reporter watched Linda get out of the bus to help an elderly woman struggling with her grocery bags. Another day, Linda discovered that a woman in the bus shelter was new in town. She invited her to come over for Thanksgiving. There is story after story of Linda Wilson Allen connecting with and serving the people who rode her bus. She was always doing something. The stories don't seem especially noteworthy, but they became newsworthy. In the article, the mystified reporter asked Linda how she was able to have a loving attitude and take such servant-hearted actions towards those who rode her bus. What did the reporter learn? She said her mood is set at 2.30 a.m. when she gets down on her knees to pray for 30 minutes. A pastor in the San Francisco area interviewed Linda at his church. He asked about her 2.30 prayer time and she said, so we talk. I ask God to show me my life, so he shows me my life. He puts things in front of us. He could be working on my patience, or it could be someone less fortunate than I am to give them some shoes or whatever the case may be. He'll show you. That's where my kindness comes from. 
Then he asked if she also prayed while she was on the job driving the bus. She replied, yes. When I'm out there doing my job ministering, I call it ministering, so you see things, God will show you things. He will show you the senior who's having a hard time getting up on the coach and how to take it in real gentle and set it down right in front of her. He'll teach you the one who's in the back who might not have all their fare. And he'll say, maybe they, maybe they just can pay what they can. He'll teach you these things. He just shows you. She didn't call it driving. Notice, notice this. She didn't call it driving. She called it ministering. She started with prayer, and then she kept praying. Linda could have seen it as her job, her way to make money, way to make ends meet, maybe a stepping stone to earn more money. But Linda had Jesus sunglasses. She saw it as a ministry God assigned her to, and she served faithfully. Can you see the difference that being a follower of Jesus can make? So what has the Lord specifically called you to do? He has placed you here or wherever he's calling you for a specific reason. He has wired you and your desires to use to be about his business. Let's leave here this morning thinking differently, having a different set of glasses. Let's leave here this morning choosing unashamedly and unapologetically committed followers of him. Jesus loves you and has called you both to be his child and to join him in the Great Commission. He has wired you with certain gifts and abilities to do this. He has put you in a certain place because he wants you to share the gospel with the precious souls around you and to help this church become a healthy place. He is patient with you, but will not accept your excuses. So let's be about the high calling Jesus has called us to. And let's not grow weary, because we know he's coming soon. Let's pray together. Jesus, we're living in a time where people are offended at everything. So we might as well share the truth in love. Help us to quit making lame excuses and quit letting our fears dictate our lives. Help us to quit letting busyness and scrolling distract us from serving you. Help us to learn what you want us to do and then help us get at it. Jesus, we know our time is short. Help us to be faithful so that when we stand before you, you will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.